Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3 and your sermon notes page on the uh, bulletin as well. I don't know that that's exactly how it happened or exactly what all Jesus said, but sometimes the images I've seen in past years of that incident are pretty calm. And I think this is probably a little more realistic. Jesus took that same drastic action twice, twice during his three-year ministry. Twice. He was obviously determined to protect the honor of God's temple. So we watch something like that or we read the accounts in the Gospels and we say, yay for Jesus and shame on those naughty people for desecrating the temple of God. I would never do that. Or would I? Or would I? Jewish history tells of another time, nearly 200 years before that incident, when an evil man who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes looted the temple of God, desecrated it, and even splattered pig's blood everywhere. He then set up pagan worship in the temple, fulfilling a prophecy of Daniel many years before of an abomination of desolation. You see, it's a serious thing to defile, dishonor, or destroy the temple of God. It is a serious thing. And that's why 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 ought to make us all sit up and take notice. It says there, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. There is a deep, chilling warning in those verses that goes far deeper than simply the care of a religious facility. (laughs) So let's examine what those verses mean for the church today and for individual Christians today. We will look quickly at three major principles. That'll be the first three points in your outline. So don't get real excited when I'm done with the first three points really quick and say, he's going to be done early today. No, no. But then we're going to look after those three quick principles, those three quick points, at some very blunt, practical applications. Here's the first principle. God's temple belongs to Him. That sounds quite obvious, but ponder that for a moment. God's temple belongs to Him. Three times in these two short verses, it stresses that the temple belongs to God. It keeps saying God's temple, God's temple, God's temple. 
It is His holy temple and not ours. In the Old Testament, as the display in the foyer indicates, there were two central structures for Jewish worship. The first was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And the Israelites constructed that under God's direction to be used during their desert wanderings as a place of worship that would represent God's presence among his people. They even literally camped around it so that God was always in the center. Well, later when they went into the promised land and were established there, God's people built a magnificent temple, a more permanent structure for the very same purpose. Now, we're going to kind of, as I refer to the temple today, I'll kind of blend those two together this morning because they basically had the same purpose. God showed with both of those that since they belonged to him, he could do whatever he wanted with those structures. God could change the temple, God could improve it, he could reshape it, or God could get rid of it, which he did. So God's temple belongs to him. Say that with me. God's temple belongs to him. Here's the second principle. God's temple is holy. This is a principle all through the Old Testament, that the temple is a sacred place. The word holy, as many of you have heard me say many, many times over the decades, holy simply means to be set apart. And in this context, it means to be devoted to God for a unique and special purpose. Holy. And the temple was called the sanctuary or the holy place because it was dedicated to God and the worship of Him. So it was to be treated with proper respect because it was holy. God's temple is holy. Would you say that with me? God's temple is holy. But 1 Corinthians 3 brings up a whole new dimension in this whole discussion. It's absolutely amazing. It is a bit mind-boggling and revolutionary, the third principle and the third point on your outline. And that is that God's people are now His temple. God's people are now His temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? That is used, the Greek word is in plural there. It is in the context all through chapter 3 of the church as a whole. That's not talking about individual Christians in that particular verse. It's talking about the church. You together are the temple of God as my people. Now, you go over to chapter 6, the verses referenced in the display out there, in verse 19 and 20, that is talking in the singular specifically of individual Christians, and it says, do you not know that you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. See, God actually lives within Jesus' followers. The God of the heavens does that. That's pretty amazing. But God gradually, over the centuries, introduced that idea to his people. I'm going to put several scriptures up here in succession. And the first is in Exodus 25, verse 8. It's referring to the tent of meeting, the one they carried through the desert. And as they're told at the beginning, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, a holy place and I will dwell among them. He's introducing that idea of dwelling among us. Then Exodus 40 describes what happened at the end of the construction of the temple, uh, the end of the book of Exodus. Here's what happened when God kind of ordained and set apart that tent. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. See, there's a pattern he's teaching here. Now look in 2 Chronicles in chapter 7. This is the more permanent structure of the temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire, and they've just dedicated the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You're following a pattern here. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever. And then much, much later, as we saw last Sunday, Jesus came to earth and introduced a whole new day, a whole new concept. An angel talked to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and in Matthew 20, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We saw that a little more extensively last Sunday. John 1.14, we saw last week, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And literally that idea is He tabernacled among us. Jesus pitched a tent and lived among us for a while. Later there was another whole new era on the day of Pentecost as the new covenant was set in motion. In Acts 2, verse 38, after the long sermon about Jesus, Peter says this, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then this is very important for today's message. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God's Holy Spirit would come to live within the followers of Jesus. From that moment of conversion, our body, our life becomes God's temple from that day forward. So those first two points on the outline apply to our life. Number one, we belong to God. And number two, we are holy. We are set aside for a special purpose. We are devoted to God for a certain kind of lifestyle, a holy lifestyle, because we are now God's temple. So verse 16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And then this from Ephesians. We opened our service with this in chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, and that's talking about us, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What an awesome thought. God's people are now his temple. Would you say that with me? God's people are now his temple. So what does that mean for us from Bethlehem this week? What does that mean that we are his people or we are his temple? Well, that's your fourth major point on your outline. God's temple is to be treated with honor. Verse 17 is a little more chilling in our text. 
It says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. What does that mean? Well, it obviously cannot be talking about a physical temple in Jerusalem since that building had been destroyed in 587 B.C. and then again was destroyed once and for all in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So it's not been in existence since then. So this verse is not talking about that building in Jerusalem. So what does it mean? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Let's refer back to point three. The temple is God's people. It's his church collectively. It's those carrying out his work. And that means that we have four huge responsibilities as God's temple. Point A, we are to protect the honor of the temple. You and I as God's temple are to protect the honor of the temple. The Old Testament, the beauty and the magnificence of God's temple brought positive attention to God. And I think God's point was, he wanted people to see that temple that his people had built under his direction and say, you know, wow, these people must have a great God. Just look at their temple. These people must really love God. Just look at the temple they built for him. But on the other hand, when God's people didn't take care of the temple, and that sometimes happened in the Old Testament, or didn't worship regularly, that gave other people a negative impression of God. And all of a sudden, the temple became something that made God look bad because his people were making him look bad. So here's my question. What is your life telling other people about God? What is your daily life telling other people about God? We are to protect the honor of God's temple today. And I want to suggest three ways we do that. Number one, we do that by giving our best effort. Our best for God. Quality. Excellence. And I will never, ever, 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 ever apologize for calling for excellence in the church of God. Our very best. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 states this principle so well. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. See, when people see that kind of effort and excellence from God here at Bethlehem, they notice that God and his work matter. It makes God look good. <laughs> We can do that in several areas. That includes, even though this building isn't the temple, it, it does include how we take care of facilities and grounds. See, if we properly take care of things here, it announces to other people, hey, God and his work really matter, and we really love him, and we want to be good stewards of what he has given us. It also includes our services and our programs and our classes. It should be our best effort all the time. Why? Because God and his work matter. 
It includes things like what we put and how we put on our website and our social media as a church. Because honestly, in this day and age, that's where people who aren't from Bethlehem will notice more about Bethlehem than anything else. People will judge us and possibly our God by how well we use these tools. Also includes something like our VBS. And the reason I single that out is because at VBS, we go all out in our effort with our decorations and with the programming and with our grounds at that time. Why? Because during that one week, more outside people observe our facilities and our programming than at any other week of the year. And they take note. <laughs> they take note. See, the message we seek to convey through all these efforts and through our best effort for God is, hey, Bethlehem believes God's work is important. Bethlehem doesn't give God second best. See, our best effort helps protect the honor of God and His temple. So I believe everything we do here should be our best effort all the time. That is at the core of my being. That is at the core of my understanding personally of Christianity. And that is at the core of my understanding of Christian ministry. So frankly, I would leave the ministry before I will ever settle for doing it halfway. Verse 17 says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. We're to protect the honor of God's temple. Also, secondly, with our mouth. <laughs> Let's speak up for God's church. Let's talk about it positively. The church, the church, because it's made up of human people, is far from perfect. Bethlehem, as we know, is far from perfect. But we can find something positive to say to try to draw people to Jesus. But negative words can destroy a church's influence. I recall, and I'm talking many years ago, decades ago, um, a lady who came here, and dear lady, sincere follower of Christ, her husband was not a believer, and uh, their, her son, because the dad didn't go to church, didn't go to church, because his dad was sending a message that wasn't important. She tried, um, but one thing, I always wondered about her trying to reach them, and one time I was in their home, and, and her making negative reference to some things at church. And I'm thinking, okay, how do you expect to ever reach your husband if you're going to badmouth the church in front of him? That's happened a handful of other times through the years of people maybe at work or someplace else because of some issue they have with something here at church, saying it someplace else, not here, but saying it to other people. And I'm thinking, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? They were hurting themselves their family member's soul, and also the name of Jesus. See, if you or I have an issue with someone else at church or uh, something at church, we need to go there, either to that person, to the leaders, or whatever, Matthew 18 says. Or you can scream and yell all you want at me, but don't disgrace God's church out other places. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. We're to protect the honor of God's temple with our mouth, but also, thirdly, very importantly, with our life. In other words, our own example. Our life should draw positive attention to Jesus and his temple and not shame. So here's my question. Do people recognize you as belonging to Jesus? 
when they hang around with you, when they work with you, when they're in traffic with you, when they're in the grocery store line with you, do they recognize you as belonging to Jesus? <laughs> Read about a little boy, a very, very dirty little boy, who came in from playing in the yard and, and asked his mother, who am I? Well, she thought he was playing along. She played along with the game. She goes, I don't know. Who are you? And he goes, wow. He goes, Mrs. Johnson was right. She said I was so dirty that my own mother wouldn't recognize me. <laughs> well, let's make sure our lives do not get so dirty that people cannot recognize us as a child of God. Let's make sure that our lives don't get so dirty that people can't even recognize us as a child of God. Over in 2 Corinthians 6, God addresses this subject again, starting in verse 16. It says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Notice what he says next, verse 17, to his people. He goes, therefore, come out from them and be separate. Separate, set apart, holy in says the Lord, touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And verse 1 of chapter 7 is so critical. Since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Does that describe you? See, we need to live clean, holy, consistent lives that draw positive attention to God just as God's magnificent temple once drew positive attention to God. Otherwise, otherwise we disgrace the name of Jesus and we defile his temple. And verse 17 says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. You see, through our best effort and our mouth and our life, we need to show how important God's temple is. This is serious stuff, being God's temple. But we're also to protect something else about the temple. We're to protect the integrity of the temple. Integrity has that idea of wholeness or completeness or consistency. It doesn't contradict itself. Hebrews 8, 5, and 6 says that the Old Testament tabernacle was to be built, quote, according to the pattern, the pattern given by God. See, it's our responsibility in God's church today to make sure we do everything according to the pattern that God has given in the new covenant. In our restoration movement, our fellowship of churches, there, we've used a number of slogans through the years, and I like these. When the, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. Or call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. The Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. In other words, it's saying, do things according to the pattern God has given us. If you look back at verses 10 and 11 of our, of our uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, it says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We need to build properly on the foundation Jesus laid for the church. In other words, we build our life, our holiness, on that foundation. We're to teach what the Bible teaches. 
That's God's blueprint for life and the church. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. His word is the foundation. But also, we are to protect the unity of the temple. The early church in New Testament times literally exploded across the Roman Empire. Literally exploded. So when the devil wanted to stop the church, one thing he did early on was disrupt the unity of the church. That is a key theme in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1 and chapter 3 especially. They had lots of problems in the Corinthian church. There was sexual sin, there was disorderly worship, there was spiritual pride, there was a misuse of the Lord's Supper, there was false teaching, and a whole lot of other bad things in the church at Corinth. But God began 1 Corinthians dealing with division in the church. How important does God consider that? God started with that, division in the church. Few things destroy the witness and power and reputation of a church more than fighting and division. Lyman Beecher was a preacher clear back in the early days of America, one of the famous New England evangelists. He put it this way. He said, the enemy employs influential friends of Christ to wound one another and to propagate distrust, propagate, propagate distrust alienation, and acrimony. He goes, whatever therefore propagates suspicion and distrust among brethren paralyzes their power. Of this, the great enemy of the church is perfectly aware and has never failed to ease himself of his adversaries by dividing them. End of quote. One of Satan's greatest weapons in the church in Corinth and in the church today is getting Christians to start arguing with each other. Galatians 5 lists divisions and factions as works of the flesh right alongside idolatry, sexual sin, and drunkenness. Did you catch that? God lists divisions in the church and being divisive in the church right alongside idolatry, sexual sin, and drunkenness. Why? Because it destroys lives and it destroys churches and it mocks Jesus' name to others. Remember a comic I saw one time, a guy's on a desert island. A ship finally comes to rescue him. And the, the, the captain of the ship's talking to him. He says, what are these three huts you have here? And he goes, well, he goes, the, the first hut is where I live. And he goes, now this second hut is where I go to church. He goes, now the third hut is where I used to go to church. Yeah. Yeah, folks, I, I, li- I grew up in Hunnam County. I live in Adams County. A lot of you are in Brown County, right next door. All three of those counties, I've watched that happen over and over and over again through the years. That's where I used to go to church, and that's where I used to go to church. There's been, you know, been here almost 43 years, and in that time, I've known people in this, Brown County, Adams County, Highland County, who've been part of five or six churches. Because I got upset at something one other place. And usually it was petty. I've quoted him often, Leroy Lawson wrote years ago, and I probably quote as much, about as much as anything else, He said, a fighting, scrabbling, bickering church can never prove to a fighting, scrabbling, bickering world that Jesus is Lord. Can't do it. Cannot do it. And that's why 1 Corinthians pleads for unity. 
That's why chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brother, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. It's like quarrels in the church. My brothers, and it goes on. What I I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Comes back to it in chapter 3. Starts out, brothers, I do not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. In other words, you're being really immature when you're divisive in the church. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Immature. Jesus prayed for his followers to be united just before he died for us. In John 17, starting at verse 20, Jesus, one of the last things he ever prayed on this earth, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. You kind of get the idea of this important to Jesus, don't you? Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let's do the kind of things in the church that bring us together and strengthen our relationships so that we can protect the unity of the temple of God. We live in a very divided country right now, and what God does not need is a divided church. My friend David Faust wrote it this way, isn't the purpose of Christ more important than petty disagreements? Isn't the word of God still clear enough that we can believe and teach the basic truth of the gospel while granting freedom to disagree in matters of opinion? He says, can't the love of Christ soothe hurt feelings, mend broken relationships, and help us work together for the common good? Haven't there been enough church meetings filled with angry accusations? Isn't isn't it time we help each other more and attack each other less? If Christians would devote our energy to planting and growing churches instead of splitting them, the work of Christ would advance mightily in the world. End of quote. Amen. And verse 17 says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Then lastly, we are to continue the mission of the temple. In other words, we're to fulfill the purpose of, of the temple of God. I love verses 5 through 9 in, in chapter 3 here. I love what that says to all of us and how all of us are important, but none of us are indispensable. Verse 5, it says, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, God's work is not a competition. We are on the same team. We're part of the same temple. 
Let's value the other parts of the body. Let's encourage the other parts of the body. Let's support the other parts of the body, even if we may not agree with them on every little detail. Let's complete the mission together and not get sidetracked. So, how are you treating God's temple? How are you treating God's temple? How are you representing God's temple? How are you helping God's temple? All three of those are part of being the temple. Our text says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. But I want to close going back to chapter 6, where it talks to us individually. Because even though we have a decision time, an invitation song, whatever you want to call it, the end of each message. Uh, that's for everybody, but each of us have to decide individually. This is what it says again, individually to us as the temple of God. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We were bought at a huge huge price. The price of Jesus' own blood. He purchased us. What does that mean to you? Have you accepted Jesus' salvation and allowed his Holy Spirit to move into your life? <laughs> well, if so, is his presence obvious to others? Is it obvious to those at work and at home and in the neighborhood and in traffic and at the ball game when you're upset at the umpire or whatever? <laughs> is it obvious that the Holy Spirit is living in you by how you react to life. And then this question is bottom of your page. Do people see a positive reflection of God when they observe me? Each of us has to ask that question. Do people see a positive reflection of God when they observe me? He's singing an old familiar song called Living for Jesus. <laughs> and this is what this song helps describe what it means to be the temple of God, individually and together. I believe in this church. I, I, <laughs> I would not have hung around this long if I did not. But I still believe in, in, a, in this church. Yeah, we've got things we need to work on. I've got things I need to work on. <laughs> but I believe God wants to raise up a great temple here, even greater than we've ever been. But it's only going to happen when each of us makes a commitment to personally and together looking like Jesus and looking like the Holy Spirit lives in our lives. So this morning as we sing this song, let's think about what we're singing. And let's truly make the commitment that we're going to live for Jesus. It's going to be obvious to everyone who meets us in any setting, comfortable or not, in a divided world, it's going to be obvious that God's Spirit lives in us. So we extend the invitation, the same one Peter gave on the, on the day of Pentecost, to repent and be baptized if you need to do that, confessing your faith in him, saying, I'm going to live for him completely, bearing the old life, <laughs> rising to a new one. Or maybe today, with most of us, it's just recommitting to that, to being the temple God wants us to be. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, 
subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.